As I mentioned earlier, we are in the middle of our Culture Shift Faith and Politics series. Now, looking at the way that we interact with politics and the elections and as being Christians. And this week we wanted to look at the cannabis referendum. Now we had originally invited Aaron Einside to come in and speak to us when we were in person, but well, we're not in person. So we actually have this great little interview that he did with Reuben Munn, the pastor of Shaw Community Church. And it's a really great opportunity for us as Christians to get some information about cannabis and about the law and about the way that we should be responding both as followers of Jesus and also as people who care about those around us. So check out this interview. Well, Aaron, thanks for being here today. Appreciate your time. Uh, you are a counsellor and also a spokesperson for the Say Dope to Dope campaign. So we appreciate you being with us to answer a few questions around uh, the issue of cannabis and this upcoming referendum we're going to be participating in. Uh, let me ask you first, uh, in, your, in your experience as a counsellor, perhaps just talk to what effects cannabis has on the human brain and on the, on the human person as a whole. Well, I covered this issue not just as a professional, but as a former daily cannabis user. For three years in my, my 20s, I smoked every day, and I can tell you firsthand that it was affecting my mental health by the end of that three years in big ways anxiety and depression were, were starting to become real issues. Particularly cannabis is dangerous for young users, those under 25 when their brain has not yet finished developing. And at that age, you're four times more likely to develop psychosis, four times more likely to develop cannabis use disorder, which is the technical name for cannabis addiction. The young brain, the developing brain, is that much more likely to be affected. And psychosis is the big one, that's the experience of losing touch with reality that may in turn lead to full-blown schizophrenia. What we now know though is that anxiety and depression, they're now on the increase among regular users. And so this is really a very dangerous product and a much stronger product than ever before. Back in the 60s, cannabis had 3% THC. Now it's 30% is the street product and the edible products claim to be 60% and above THC. Now, whenever I'm in a public meeting and I mention the 20-year age limit, those of us who grew up when it was 20 years for alcohol chuckle because we know that when we were 18, when we were 16, we had no trouble getting alcohol when the legal age was 20. And there's no reason to believe young people won't get their hands on the stuff, either now through an older friend or sibling buying some legally. Of course, the new legislation permits up to four plants to be grown in every home so now there's going to be freely available cannabis among those who grow it at home and of course the black market isn't going anywhere mm. and we know that around 70 percent of the sale of cannabis will continue to be through the black market that's interesting isn't it because that is that seems to be one of the drivers with this new bill is eliminating the black market that seems to be one of the pieces of logic behind legalizing cannabis that you're going to get rid of the, the so-called black market are you saying that's not likely to happen well, as an aspiration, it's admirable. But the problem is, in New Zealand, the black market has existed since 1926, so nearly 100 years. So unlike alcohol, which had a very short prohibition time, only about 13 years, we've got nearly a century of prohibition of cannabis. The black market is that much more uh, developed and organised, and it's not going anywhere. So overseas, nowhere 
uh, has managed to eliminate the black market. In fact, what happens is, and this is the problem with this legislation, is you set up a commercialization model where the new legal market goes into competition with the black market, and what happens is the price falls. So in Canada, for instance, uh, the legal cannabis is $10 a gram, the black market cannabis is $5.90 a gram, and it's twice the strength. And so the black market doesn't go anywhere. Now, practically, what does this look like? Well, my son is 23, and the other day he showed me that one of his old high school buddies sends him a direct marketing message through social media every week offering to sell him cannabis. And my son joked and said, Dad, this guy now has a marketing degree. He's not going anywhere. He has a highly sophisticated way of reaching out to people in a direct marketing way that we've never seen before. Back when I was a user, you had to know where the local tinny shop was. Now the tinny shop is coming to you. So stepping back and thinking about this from a Christian perspective, we're trying to look at this issue through the lens of a Christian worldview. How do we do that? What are, what are some of the issues that we need to consider as Christians? Uh, what, what sort of lens should we have as we look at this issue from a Christian perspective? Well, let me change hats for a second because Say No to Dope is an evidence-based campaign, not a faith-based campaign. But if we do think about this as a faith issue, then the Bible gives us this idea of the good life that God offers us, what we might call the abundant life. And we have to ask ourselves, is addiction part of the good life? And then we have to look at the sorts of places that cannabis shows up, and it shows up in all the wrong places. It has some very bad friends, and it's often, unfortunately, accompanied by things like poverty. So one of the issues here is a social justice one that Christians should be concerned about. And that is that the new market will target the poor and the vulnerable, mm -hmm. communities of colour. In Denver, for example, in Colorado, among the poorer neighbourhoods of Denver, there's one legal cannabis dispensary for every 47 adults. So this new market, the addiction for profit market, will target the poor. Mm -hmm. And that will have flow-on effects. I used to work for a charity in Manurewa, uh, and every day we used to see firsthand how cannabis addiction meant that there was poverty in the home. Money that was supposed to be spent feeding children, clothing children, was being spent on addiction. And so there's these systemic problems that occur when we let something like cannabis run rampant in a community. Mm. So I think it's pretty inconsistent with the idea of the good life that Jesus offers. And so consequently, Christians should be terribly concerned that our society would be promoting something that really flows in the opposite direction. Mm. Thinking specifically around children, uh, we've got a lot of young families in the church. You know, think kids are in the home and so on. What are some of the effects for kids living in homes where cannabis is being used? It was interesting. I was part of a radio interview where a caller rang in after my interview and was incredulous at the idea of secondhand smoke. This was because a teacher had called in and said that the children of homes that are regular users would often come to school clearly affected by the cannabis. Well, this particular advocate for legalisation said, that's not true, there's no such thing as secondhand smoke. So I rung the Respiratory Foundation, who are one of the medical associations who oppose this legislation, and they sent me a study that showed that 50% of children in a study where cannabis was being used in the home by adults had THC in their urine. Now, apart from the obvious fact that you and I know that whatever is modelled to children becomes normal to them, becomes accessible to them, and once people are using these high-potency products and they are very much sort of in this kind of relaxed and sleepy state, they're not going to be able to monitor whether or not young people in the home are now starting to use some of that product as well. Mm. So you're saying even though these products can't be explicitly marketed to children, 
there is still there are still effects and implications for the kids living in these homes. Mm. And we are seeing products that are directly marketed to children, edibles, gummy bears, vaping oils that are very much being targeted for young people to use. Now they're not available under the law in the first instance. The New Zealand police said that that fact only empowered the gangs. It told the gangs which products to focus on. And only recently a Hamilton woman was arrested for trying to sell uh, THC edibles through social media. So they're out there and they're targeting young users and these are devastating products for two reasons. They are high potency and the edible products are harder for people to manage the dosage because the delay between eating and the onset of getting high is that much longer. People often overdose and, uh, and take too much of this product and have a very difficult and painful experience. One of the arguments that's put forward by people uh, in favour of legalising cannabis, they're not necessarily objecting to the fact that cannabis is harmful. Many would accept that, but they would say that legalisation is a way of controlling it, putting it into a, a safe context, limiting access, limiting potency, uh, and so on, and therefore reducing the effects of harm. In my, and I understand that's one of the bill's stated purposes, is reducing harm to individuals and communities. Do you think that legalisation is a means to reducing harm? It would be if the black market went away, but because it doesn't, the overall effect of the two markets competing with each other is more cannabis is grown and sold and consumed than ever. So in Colorado, the market went from $5.5 billion a year worth of cannabis being sold to $7 billion. So you can't have harm reduction and increased use. They are incompatible, which is why the New Zealand Medical Association is opposing this bill. And a recent article in the New Zealand Medical Journal said that this idea that the market would go away was inflated and unrealistic, unlikely to happen. So for people approaching this referendum and seeking to uh, think through the issues, make an informed decision, uh, for yourself as a, as a former cannabis user, as a counsellor, what is the key message that you would give to people? What is the key thing that we should be thinking about as we head towards this referendum? Well, I think the challenge is that this is one of those moments where we can use our freedom to benefit ourselves or to benefit somebody else. Those who want recreational cannabis, they want to use that freedom for themselves. And I want to suggest that this is one of those moments where we use our freedom for others. In particular, those who do not get to vote in this referendum. Those who are under 18, but who will be deeply affected. Aaron, thank you for your time today. I appreciate your answering our questions. Great to be here.